Today marks the first Sunday in Lent, which is a period of 40 days leading up to Easter. The season of Lent began this past Wednesday with what is known as Ash Wednesday. The 40 days of Lent is a time leading up to the crucifixion when we are to recall the sufferings of Jesus, which began with the temptation in the wilderness. And the temptation in the wilderness was immediately preceded by Jesus being baptized by John in the River Jordan. We read, we read in Mark chapter 1, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, both of our scripture readings this morning from the Gospel of Mark and the first letter of Peter uh, talk about baptism. And since I have committed myself to um, following the lectionary for finding my sermons, I should probably talk about baptism. However, to be honest with you, I tried to find a way to avoid this controversial and convoluted subject. Now, probably for most of you listening to me, there's no controversy, there's no convolution. You understand this uh, doctrine of baptism and you're secure in it, and that's good. But for someone like me who is constantly engaged with the church at large, I'm aware that the subject is not open and shut, cut and dried. For instance, Catholics believe that baptism saves you, and they have good scripture for that. Baptists believe that baptism is something that a saved person must do, and they have good scripture for that. Because Baptists believe that baptism is only for those who have reached an age of understanding, they do not baptize babies. But Catholics, Episcopalians, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Moravians, uh, and many others practice infant baptism, although for differing reasons. And there is an entire denomination devoted to what they believe is the correct formula for the words to be spoken at baptism. And they have a good scriptural basis for their belief. Most other denominations, however, have a different formula for the words which are to be spoken, and they have a good scriptural basis for their belief. Baptists do not accept any baptism outside their denomination as valid. So to join a Baptist congregation, one must be baptized by them, regardless of whether you have been previously baptized. The Nicene Creed, which we recite once a month on Communion Sunday, and we use it for our confession of faith, says that we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Presbyterians interpret that to mean that one only needs to be baptized once, regardless of how you were baptized or who baptized you beforehand. Others, though, interpret it to mean there is only one legitimate baptism. They think that all other forms of baptism are invalid. There are also those who insist that valid baptism must be performed by only certain people. And finally, there are those who only accept full immersion in the water 
And there are those who pour water over the head in some fashion. If I didn't know all this, I could just proclaim to you the standard teaching of the Presbyterian Church and be done with it. And even with this knowledge, I could still do that, but it would be at the expense of intellectual integrity. Therefore, as is my tendency, I will lay before you this morning as much scripture as I can on the subject so that you can make your own decision, even though your own decision has already been made. So let's begin with the efficacy of baptism. What does efficacy mean, Elizabeth? It's the ability to produce a desired or intended result. In other words, does baptism save you? We have scripture in Mark chapter 16 and verse 16 says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And then in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, we read baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These two verses seem to indicate that salvation comes through being baptized. Now using that logic, it is easy to see why certain groups baptize their babies. In fact, it is so important to some devotees of those religions that there is a great fear for the baby, for the infant, if it is not baptized. There are examples, though, of people who were obviously regenerated before baptism. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 47, we read, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? This was Peter proclaiming the good news of Jesus in the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, a Roman soldier, and the Holy Spirit came upon the family much the same way that did on Pentecost Sunday, where Peter was present. And then we have Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Someday I'm going to get to preach on it. I love Philip and the Ethiopian, all the things that are brought out, but not this one. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with his scripture, he told the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now we could gain from this passage that Philip was teaching baptism as a part of the gospel. We don't know that for sure, but it certainly appears that way. Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, when these verses are each considered in the formulation of a doctrine of baptism, it should be obvious that a hard and fast rule is not correct. You can't have it one way or the other, but we do. That's what we tend to do. We want our little boxes. It is possible that being baptized before one believes is efficacious, as well as the one who believes and is then baptized. Hmm. For me, therefore, I have done away with any rule about the sequence of belief and baptism, the timing or the age. Somebody wants to be baptized, I'm going to baptize them. So next, let's look at the formula for the words to be spoken at baptism. In Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19, we read where Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
Then we have in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Wasn't Peter there for the Great Commission? And yet he says, Baptize in the name of Jesus Christ. Is the one doing the baptizing supposed to say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Or is he supposed to say, I baptize you in the name of Jesus. Both are scriptural. Both are correct. Is one more correct than the other? I'll let you decide. When I think of baptism in the form of immersion, putting the person under the water, I always say, they can't hear what I'm saying anyway. So now let's consider the water of baptism. Sprinkled, dunked, or plunked. Poured or plunged. The word baptized in our Bible is a transliteration, not a translation. Transliteration means that the English letters for baptize are taken exactly from the Greek letters of the same word. In this instance, I have the Greek on top. Can you see the similarities? Beta, B, Alpha, A. The next one is Pi with P, then there's the tau, which is T, Yoda, which is I, Zeta, which is Z. Of course, the last letter is Omega, um, not Omega, yeah, Omega, and we translate it to E to put it into English. But it's just a transliteration. It's taking those letters and making them English letters. The history of the word in the Greek language shows that it has never meant more or anything different than to dip or immerse. In that place then, those who insist on complete immersion rather than sprinkling are probably more correct. I don't know that it makes a difference. And finally, we come to who is authorized to perform baptism. In our denomination, and many others, Only those who are authorized for word and sacrament are permitted to perform baptism. The concept is gathered under the term of ordained, ordained ministry. There's no way to hide the fact that this concept is carried over from the Catholics from the period that we know as the Reformation. Only the so-called clergy are permitted to administer the sacraments of baptism and communion. And sacraments, by the way, is not a word in scripture. You won't find it there. Now, while the idea of a specialized group of people called clergy does have a scriptural basis, there's a definite problem with the interpretation of a very important passage, which we have just considered in a different light. In Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19, that is referred to as the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Now, we consider this verse, like I said earlier, under the idea of the correct words. I want us to now consider the passage as regards who is authorized to baptize. Almost all evangelistic denominations emphasize what they call the Great Commission from this verse. And they teach the people in the church that you have a responsibility to fulfill the Great Commission. You are to go out and preach the gospel in the world. 
And I take that from this passage because they believe that the words of Jesus apply to everyone. However, when it comes to doing the baptizing, they only allow the pastor to baptize new believers. Now, I've challenged more than one pastor with this incongruency, but I've only had one who actually made the change, who saw the inconsistency and made the change. He still had to go to his superintendent to make sure it was okay, and he found out that it was. Logically, though, if the so-called Great Commission is for every believer, then every believer has the authority to baptize those whom they lead to salvation. It's just, that's the way we read the scripture. However, I'll also leave that one for you to figure out. There's one last thing, though, which should be considered on the subject of baptism. How important is baptism? Is it important to be baptized? If you are not baptized, what is your place in eternity? Jesus is our example, and he did not baptize anyone, although he did submit to John's baptism. Paul, the apostle who has brought us much understanding of the gospel, had this to say, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Comparing this with the so-called Great Commission, we find Paul going contrary to our common understanding. Is it conceivable that Paul was not ordained and therefore not entitled to administer baptism? Hardly. I, did not give you, I didn't give you the history of the baptismal ritual today, but from Paul's statement here, we might be able to conclude that baptism was only for a season in the growth of religion. It may have only been for a period of time. So take from this what you will. Therefore, whatever your stance is on baptism, you are probably correct. Unless, of course, your stance causes you to take up the sword of division with another believer. So, if you find yourself in a discussion on proper baptism and the other person becomes insistent, you can correctly respond with, you're probably right, and let it drop at that. It's not an issue over which to divide. It's not an issue that determines our salvation on how we believe it. It has little to do with all that is a church ritual that is done it's been carried on and therefore there's a lot of people who believe different ways hopefully you've seen that they all have a scriptural basis this morning amen let's